listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. I grew up, many of you know, I, I grew up in a small town, Clearbrook, Minnesota, 560 people. And growing up in this town, there was one stoplight in our entire county. That's not an exaggeration, one stoplight. So during your driver's test, you had to go through this, this one stoplight. So I remember as a kid taking trips to the cities, and I remember how exciting that was, driving through like Minneapolis and St. Paul, and you're looking up, there's the Fauché building. And there's the IDS Center, and there's the, that's where the Vikings play, and all of this. And, and there's so many signs, there's, there's so much, to, like as a farm kid, there's so much to take in, you want to absorb it all, and it's just kind of overwhelming, right? Well, I kind of feel that way as we're reading through the story. Yeah? I kind of feel like there's so much to take in each chapter, and I want to pause, and I want to zoom in, and I want to learn more about each little bit. But really, this is more of a broad flyover. So we're not so much zooming in on the particular trees, which is what we often do, but we're looking at the forest. We're looking at the big picture, and we're asking the question, what is the Bible all about? What is Scripture teaching us? And for me, part of the, the I think the revelation that I'm, I'm having is, is that I know a lot of these stories. Like, it's not that I don't know David and Goliath. It's not that I don't know the story of Genesis it's not that I don't know who the Apostle Paul is, but seeing how those are connected to tell one continuous narrative, that is huge, that is massive. So we've been learning, the, the, the question we've been trying to answer is, what is the Bible all about? And we want you to be able to respond to that question if someone on the street were to ask you, what is the Bible all about? So if you know this by now, say it with me. The Bible is a story of God's great love for us how far we have gone from that love, and how far God was willing to go to get us back. Right? The Bible is a story. It has this continuous thread. It is a narrative. It is true. It is not a myth. And that's the best part of it. Right? Today we're in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is called New Commands and a New Covenant. And there's a number of key events that are happening here in chapter 5. And it, it starts out with Moses. He had, he had led the Israelites through the Red Sea. And now they're in the desert and they're headed toward Mount Sinai. And so they, they end up at, at Mount Sinai. They're there for about two years, actually. They're at Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on the mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments. That's kind of the big event of the chapter. And then there's this other thing that happens that as Moses is coming down the mountain, he hears something, right? He hears a sound. He hears the singing and he hears the dancing and he discovers that during his 40 days up on the mountain, the Israelites have, what have they done? They've fashioned a golden calf and they're worshiping it and Aaron gave in to their demands and, and they're doing this. And, and so it, it, Moses throws down the tablets and the Israelites experience this, this deep punishment and it's a tragic story about that. And yet God is faithful to them through this. And then we come to uh, the tent of meeting, this, this, this 
temporary structure where Moses would go and meet with the Lord and the pillar of cloud would descend and Moses would speak face to face with the Lord and as he was doing this, the Israelites would come out to their tents and they would worship the Lord as well. And then finally we have instructions on the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a mobile church, the best way to kind of describe it, that they would move around. And in the tabernacle is where uh, the whole sacrificial system was instituted. This way of the Israelites atoning for their sins. Very elaborate laws about the sacrifices and, and what should be made when, and this goes on for chapters and chapters. But today what I want to do is zoom in on the giving of the Ten Commandments. And if you have your copy of the story, you can follow along with me as I read this. It's going to be on page 61. Or if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. It'll be up on the screen here. And I'll ask you to rise for the reading of God's Word today. Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you for your instructions that teach us how to live, teach us how to be your people. I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I want to start out this morning with a straw poll, okay? Is that all right with everybody? We're talking about laws. Another word for a law is a rule. I'm going to put a statement up, and I want you to tell me whether you strongly agree, somewhat agree, or neutral, somewhat disagree, or strongly agree with this statement, okay? I love rules. Anybody here strongly agree? Rules, the best. Give me more. Okay, we got at least one. I won't shout any names. We've got a couple here. That makes sense. Okay. Strongly agree. How about somewhat agree? Yeah, so, okay, that's most of you. That's safe. You see your neighbor raising your hand, and then you do too, and it's like, okay, I'm, I better do this as well, a little peer pressure here. How about neutral? Anybody neutral with that statement? Okay, a couple neutral up there, neither hot nor cold. Uh, how about somewhat 
disagree. Nobody's brave enough. Okay, oh, we got a couple. I strongly disagree with this statement. All right, all right, there it is, yep. I think it's fair to say that when it comes to rules, a lot of us could take them or leave them. That's how we feel about it. At best, we tolerate them. But how many of us would say, like, I just, I love rules. Man, rules are just, okay, yeah. We got, like, rules are kind of my thing. I mean, how many eHarmony profiles have you pulled up where it says someone's interests are long walks on the beach, uh, hunting, fishing, and following the rules? Uh, I'm not on eHarmony, but I would venture to guess that it's probably a low number, and uh, if you do, that's probably a good reason you're still single. But um, let me ask this question. You know the, the Minnesota DNR hunting and trapping regulations? They put out a new, a new guide each year, right? Now, when that thing's hot off the press and you grab your copy, what's the first thing you do? How many of you weep tears of joy when that new edition comes out? You text all your friends and your parents and you tell them the good news. Hey guys, guess what? I can only shoot two roosters a day this year during pheasant season. Isn't that wonderful? Or how about when you see a speed limit sign? Does anyone here offer a quick praise to the Lord when you drive by one of those? How about that new tax code when it comes out? You buy the audiobook version, right? You've got to have somebody read that to you. Or kids, let's ask this. When your parents tell you, all right, guys, we've got a 10 p.m. curfew tonight. I need you back home by 10 p.m. Now, if I know any of the kids here, I know that what you say to your parents when you hear that is, thank you, Mom and Dad, so much for loving me and caring for me enough to set these rules and boundaries. In fact, next week, let's make it 9.30 just to be safe. Sound familiar? I didn't think so. Rules get a bum rap. The law gets a bum rap. People hear something like the Ten Commandments and they think it sounds repressive, like God is just setting up some arbitrary guidelines to kill our joy. But that's unfortunate because it's actually not why the law was given in the first place. So what is the purpose and why was God's law given in the first place? Well, we're going to learn four things about God's law today. We're going to learn that God's law is grounded in grace, it's rooted in relationship, it's provided for a purpose, and it's completed by Christ. Okay, God's law is grounded in grace, rooted in relationships, provided for a purpose, completed by Christ. That's your roadmap. If there's any English teachers in here, a little alliteration for you today. I think my high school English teacher would be proud of me. Number one, grounded in grace. Well, we started our reading this morning in verse 3. Which makes sense, because this is the very first commandment. But I want to back up one verse to verse 2 and read this. This is Exodus 20, verse 2. If we can get this up on the screen. And I'll invite you, why don't you join with me in reading this? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Sometimes we call this the introduction or the prelude to the Ten Commandments. And it's really key, okay? I don't want you to miss this this morning. Notice what God is doing here. He hasn't started giving the commandments yet. He, he hasn't done any do this, don't do this, thou shalt, thou shalt not. Before he does any of that, before he tells them what they should do, he reminds them what he has done. That's important. 
He's reminding them of his actions toward them. He's reminding them of the exodus when he saved them through the blood of the Lamb, led them out of bondage. He's reminding them that he is a God who does everything for their benefit. So the law actually kind of starts from a a place of gospel. If we could say it that way, it starts from a place of grace. It's grounded in grace. Our catechism picks up on this. The question, why was this introduction given? Answer, it was given to show that God loved his people and that he acted to help them in a particular time and place and that his action towards them was one of kindness. Kindness. Psalm 125.2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. Here's something else important to know about the Ten Commandments. So this word that we translate as commandments, in Hebrew the word is davar. Can you say that with me? Davar. And in Hebrew, instead of adding an S on the end to make it plural, you add a little I-M, like im. So the word is davarim, would be more than one word. So we're talking about the ten davarim of God. By the way, the word Elohim, that's, uh, that's where that plural comes in there. And it's interesting because God is so big, he can't be contained in the singular. He has to be spoken of as a plural, Elohim. No charge for that one. Um, Devar, ten words of God is the proper way to translate this. Here's why that matters. You see, even as he lays out these boundaries, God is describing, he's mapping out how life will work best. He's saying, if you're going to live out your new identities as my people, this is what will be good for you. This is the boundary. Anything within it is going to help you. Anything outside of it is outside of my will and is going to hurt you. Kind of like in the same way a rancher would would build a fence around a a steep drop-off to keep the, the cattle from going over the edge. Does that make sense? So when God gives Israel the law, he's describing the shape that their new covenant relationship with him is going to take. He paints a picture, and on this canvas, the very first brush stroke that he paints is to remind them of his love and mercy and grace and rescue. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 20th century pastor in Germany, who was eventually martyred for his faith just before the end of of World War II, he, he says this about... Ten Commandments. He says, in these ten words, God is speaking as truly of his grace as of his command. Law of God is grounded in grace. That's number one. Number two, the law of God is rooted in relationship. It's rooted in relationship. I don't know if you've noticed this in your own life, but when somebody asks you to, to do something, like gives you instructions or, or tells you to do this or don't do this, one of the main factors that determines whether, I'm not, whether or not I'm going to do or not do that is my relationship with that person. Like if I'm in the Walmart parking lot and I pull into a, a spot, someone walks up to me and says, hey buddy, you're parked a good two inches over that line. Move your car. 
now me, I'm a people pleaser by nature, chronic people pleaser. So I'm going to be like, oh, okay, I don't want to cause any rift here. I'm a good Minnesotan at heart. So I'll, I'll do that and I'll move. But I'm going to be grumbly about it. I'm not going to want to do it. I'm going to be like, well, this person doesn't care about me. They just care about following their stupid rules. Like, <laughs> I don't matter to them, right? Now, contrast that with someone that you know and that you know loves you. When a command comes from that person, you're going to hear it, you're going to receive it differently, right? Case in point, my brother, if you know anything about my brother, he's kind of the black sheep of the family. The rest of us are just kind of these, these introverts, and he's like, yeah, let's have a party. And we're like, Chris, sit down and read a book. Um, but... He, had a wet, he, he got married number of, a few years back, and he had this thing where he's like, all right, all of my groomsmen, they're gonna, we're going to do uh, a dance, with, a coordinated dance with all my groomsmen. Bollywood-style dance with all of these Midwestern groomsmen. I debated long and hard about whether to show you the clip. I decided against it because I didn't want your mind to be tarnished um, when you think of your pastor. The point is that... I did it because I love my brother, and I know him. So you contrast kind of the Walmart parking lot example. Someone you don't know asks you to do something with Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has a proven track record of faithfulness. Already we've seen this in the story. Remember back in Genesis 12, when he makes this covenant with Abraham already, he says, I will be your people, you will be my God. You will be my people, I will be your God. I will make you a great nation and will bless you. See, that's God's promise. They are His chosen nation, a, a royal priesthood. Israel is already His people. He's already called them His own. He's not laying out this list of commands and saying, look, if you really want to be my people... You will perfectly obey these commands. If you really want to show me and prove to me that you're worthy of my love, you will obey my rules or else. No, that's, that's not how it starts at all. Remember, the introduction says, I rescued you from Egypt. I redeemed you. I paid for you with the blood of the Lamb. I will always provide for you. So, so you don't have to go chasing after all these other things. You don't have to go after the false idols of the land. You don't, you don't have to go coveting after your neighbor's donkey. Right? You don't have to because you are my people. One author says it like this. He says, Obedience is relationally conceived. Those who are given the law are already God's people. God doesn't give them the law to make them his people. They are his people. And then the law comes after. So that's number two. Law is rooted in relationship. Number three, the law is provided for a purpose. Here's a question I want to ask you, and the answer might sound self-evident, but stick with me. What purpose does the law serve? Why do we have the law? What is, what is its what is its Objective. 
Well, it's easy to assume we know the answer to that question based solely on human wisdom. And we might, you know, our knee-jerk response might be to say something like, well, the, the law is here to make things better. It's here to, to help us improve. Rules fix our predicament, right? Something along those lines would be a default response. Uh, people much smarter than me have studied the Bible, though, and, and over the course of millennia, what they have discovered is that when you look at all the passages of law in the Scripture, the do's, don'ts, thou shalt, thou shalt not, there are really only three purposes, kind of three main categories, three uses of the law is what we call these. The law functions as a curb, that's number one, as a mirror, that's number two, and as a guide, that's number three. So number one, curb. Think of a curb on a street, right? I used to be a civil engineer for a number of years, and believe it or not, you have to design curb and gutter, okay? It's not just, you see this, this, this piece of concrete here, like somebody actually had to, to design it. You know, it based on uh, the cross slope of the roadway, things like the grade, based on the average daily traffic, on the hydrology of the area, a million different factors will determine, like, what does that curb and gutter actually look like, Okay? So that curb and gutter kind of serves two main purposes. One is, as a curb, it conveys the water into the storm sewer system. That's one. So when you have a rain event, it, it brings it there. Second thing it does is uh, it, it really protects pedestrians from the street. Right? It, it keeps the cars from, from going off the edge. Or it serves at least as, as a warning to tell them, all right, you've proceeded here, don't go any further. So when you park, you pull up to the curb, and you, it, it tells you where you are to stop. Go this far and, and, and no further. So this is what we're talking about with, with the, the law as a curb, is it keeps us from running off the rails. It keeps society functioning because otherwise life would just be Anarchy. So, so God gives us things like political rulers and zoning boards and, and stop signs and the military. So whether you are a Christian or not, you benefit from this use of the law. So that's number one, curb. Number two, the law is a mirror. What do you see when you look in a mirror? Well, you, you see yourself. Unfiltered, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The mirror reveals the truth, and that's what God's law does. It reveals that we actually don't measure up to what he is asking us to do because at the heart of the law, no matter how good we think we've done, no matter how close we think we've come to fulfilling it, what is at the heart of that is, be holy for I am holy. And when we hear that, we see ourselves in that mirror and we see our sin in full HD clarity. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, see this? Through the law, we become what? Conscious of our sin. The law doesn't fix us. It was never given to make our situation before God better, right? A, a mirror will not save you. It won't fix your problem, but it will tell you where the problem is. The law tells us the bad news, that in the sight of a holy God, we don't come anywhere close to measuring up. So often, even when we do the right things, it's for the wrong reason. 
None of our motivations are pure, and that's ultimately what God cares about the most, our hearts. Which means we are all guilty of his eternal wrath and condemnation. See, the law, these rules, don't make us awesome people. In fact, they actually tell us how unawesome we are. Luther said this. He said, the law is a minister and a preparation for grace. The law is a minister and a preparation for grace. It, it prepares the way by knocking us off of our own two legs and revealing, man, I can't do this. I'm not doing this. Dear Jesus, help me. So the law is a curb. It's a mirror. And then finally, the law is a guide. If you've ever done much hiking, there are these things called cairns. Anybody familiar with these? You go out in the, in the wilderness, and you're on this trail, and you're not quite sure where it is, so other hikers will pile up these, these rocks to let you know, yeah, you're on the right path. This is the way you should go. And when we're talking about God's law as a guide, this is kind of what we're talking about. When we become Christians, when the second use of the law has done its work and, and driven us to Jesus, and we believe and trust in Him, the law also now functions as a kind of cairn in our lives. It tells us where to go, where not to go. It guides us. As David says in Psalm 119, 105. You know this verse. Say it with me. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Law is a curb. Law is a mirror and a guide. Law was provided for a purpose. Finally, number four, the law is completed by Christ. You might have picked up on something here. I don't think I've been too subtle about it. Uh, the law is really hard. <laughs> The law is really, really difficult. In fact, it's so hard that no human being, even Mother Teresa or Bill Gates or Martin Luther King Jr. or, or anyone in this room has ever obeyed the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? Because it's not just about going through the motions, external motions, but it's about wanting to do the right things for the right reason, all the time, every time. Whoever fails at just one point has broken God's law, as James tells us. It's a really hard, high bar. It's like trying to high jump over the Eiffel Tower. See, only one person in all of history was able to do this. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. What has Jesus come to do with the law? Abolish it? Get rid of it? law doesn't matter anymore? No. Not at all. He came to fulfill the law. See, Jesus alone perfectly fulfilled the law in our place. He alone perfectly obeyed all of God's commandments. And through faith, His perfect obedience becomes our perfect obedience. This is the way that faith works. There's a transfer there. So when we forget God and worship the golden calf instead, 
Jesus worships his heavenly Father alone, trusting him perfectly and finding his peace and security in him, even in seemingly impossible circumstances. And when we grumble and complain in our lives, I know no one here does that. Even when God has just proven himself faithful for the upteenth time, Jesus opens his mouth and speaks only words of praise and thanksgiving to his heavenly Father. And when we fail to love our neighbors the way we should, playing God and judging them, even with a two-by-four sticking out of our own eye, they're not cool enough, they're not conservative or liberal enough, they're not cultured enough, they're not repentant enough, as if we could see clearly in the first place. See, while we're busy sniping others on social media and shaming them for their sins, Jesus is busy absorbing the bullets and forgiving them. In fact, forgiving the very people who pull the trigger. In other words, he offers his forgiveness to us. And he calls us to repentance, to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me when we fail. Which is more often than we'd usually like to admit. Because we're not just turning away from our sin. We're turning toward Jesus. We're not just turning away from our sin. That's not just what repentance is. That's half of it. But we're turning toward Jesus instead. God's law is good. God's law is gracious. It is for our benefit. And yes, we strive to obey it because it is a picture of what a healthy, flourishing, covenant relationship with the God of the universe looks like. The law is good. Absolutely. But the gospel is even better. Because the gospel is good news. As Martin Luther says in his Heidelberg Disputation, I apologize, I've gone over my quota of Luther quotes for the day, but this is a good one. He says, the law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. The law is for doing, the gospel is for believing. So just to review, God's law is grounded in grace, it is rooted in relationship, it is provided for a purpose, and it is completed in Christ. Next week we'll dive into chapter 6, Wandering. This is a really super exciting chapter. I encourage you to read it through this week ahead of time. It'll take you maybe 20, 25 minutes. But until then, my hope and prayer is that you, like King David in our kids' sermon today, would find yourself rejoicing in God's law, even as it brings you to the end of yourself so that you might trust in Jesus more. Amen. Let's pray. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. 
Amen.